This is the Education Gadfly Show. We're not supposed to talk about these things, Ian. You're going to have your school form card taken away from you. Oh, dear. Well... What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me welcoming my co-host, the unicorn frappuccino of education reform, Alyssa Schwang. That's a new one. Hey, Mike. Hello, Alyssa. I really have no idea what unicorn frappuccinos <laughs> are, but I hear they are a thing. But let us also welcome our special co-host and guest for this week, Ian Rowe, the CEO. I I was going to introduce you properly. He has a whole thing spiel planned. Come on. You got so many titles here, Ian. Let me get them. CEO of Public Prep in New York City, as well as a senior visiting fellow right here at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Hello, Ian. Hello, hello. It's a great honor to be here. Hey, we're so excited that you are here in town in the studios in Washington, D.C., Start, Ian. You you run Public Prep. That is a network of charter schools in the Big Apple. Tell us just a bit about your schools. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's quite an honor. Yes, I run Public Prep, which is, as far as I can tell, the nation's only network of public charter schools that are exclusively focused on single-sex public charter schools. Yeah. We are pre-K through eighth grade, and we have all-girls schools and all-boys schools, five campuses, about 1,800 students in the heart of the South Bronx and in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. All right. Great. Well, great to have you here, Ian. And Alyssa, have you had a unicorn frappuccino? I have not, and I don't think I want to have one. You know, I'm a pretty big baker. I bake a lot. I follow a lot of bakers Mm -hmm. online and whatever to get ideas. The unicorn thing has been really taken off, and it kind of looks really scary to me. The unicorn thing? Like it's people a trend. are baking It's a unicorns? whole trend. You can bake a unicorn cake. You can... Oh, it's very... Le- I don't know. I liked Lisa Frank when I was a kid, but don't want to eat that. Okay. Okay. Well, hey, this is not the baking podcast, although I'm sure there are I such things. I would take that. Yeah, I bet. But this is uh, all about Ed Reform. Let's do our Ed Reform update. All right, Ian. So today we're going to talk about something you've been writing a lot about on our blog, Flypaper, and in the Education Gadfly, and that is the success sequence. This is something I have had a long interest in as well. Uh, This notion that, hey, in America still today, that if you follow the success sequence, which means finishing at least your high school education, getting a job, getting married, and then starting a family in that order that it is almost impossible to be poor— And what could we do to teach that success sequence to our young people? You've been thinking a lot about that. But Ian, don't you know these issues, uh, you know, about family and and sex and pregnancy, these are supposed to be taboo. We're not supposed to talk about these things, Ian. You're going to have your school reform card taken away from you. Oh, dear. Well, well, thank you for that invitation. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, I think for a lot of us in the education reform world have been that have been doing this work for a very long time, we have had the honor of working with incredibly talented people that think deeply about issues of injustice, racism, poverty, fighting for kids to improve their academic outcomes. And yet these challenges persist generation after generation. And the question is, why? Why, why, why? And typically, when we're hearing about these things, um, we're hearing that racism and poverty are generally the, the, the two go-to reasons. And of course, those are significant factors. Mm-hmm. But for most of us who were really concerned with how do we truly break the intergenerational cycle of poverty? How do we get kids off of that track? One of the things to do is to look at, okay, well, 
how have kids who were in low-income situations, Mm -hmm. how have they actually emerged out of poverty into the middle class and beyond? And Brookings Institution did some work a few years ago, essentially where they reverse integrated. They Mm -hmm. they looked at what were the series of decisions Mm -hmm. that led to low-income kids emerging out of poverty, and hence these four things that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. A high school degree, a job of any kind, which will you know show to, where you can learn discipline and, and the responsibility of working, mm-hmm. marriage, children after age twenty one, mm-hmm. gives you a ninety eight percent probability of emerging out of a low income situation into the middle yep. class and beyond. Yep, that's just data. Now, a couple things, Ian. You know, there's been this big debate over the last year about how we can keep the big tent of education reform together. Mm -hmm. And there are people on the left who have said to me, look, Mike, when you talk about things like families and single-parent families, uh, that makes it hard for us on the left to keep the coalition together. Because liberals, we don't want to talk about that. We feel like Mm -hmm. you're moralizing, you're shaming people. In the same way that some of us on the right have said to our colleagues, hey, you know, whatever you, you you think about Black Lives Matter, you got to understand that, you know, it ends up making it hard for us to keep Republicans and conservatives in the tent because of, you know, if you're, if it feels like you're attacking the police or you're attacking the criminal justice system, that makes life harder for us. So maybe some of these issues should just be off the table. You know, you guys don't talk about Black Lives Matter at, at reform conferences. We won't talk about family disintegration at ed reform conferences. What do, you, what do you say to that? It's a very challenging problem. You know, I, I saw that in January of this year, uh, American Enterprise Institute and the uh, New Schools Venture Fund yep. brought together about 24 amazing leaders in education reform from every political yep. stripe. Yep. To, like, address oh, this, this to address this civil war that yeah. we had. I mean, it was, a, yeah. it was a, a productive, I think they named it a productive dialogue around race. Yeah social justice and education reform. And the consensus statement that was produced is a must read because it really highlights that there is agreement that there are these persistent racial achievement gaps, that socioeconomic status matters more than it should. But it also highlights that there's just disagreement on how we address those. Mm -hmm. But the thing that's stunning is that there's not a singular mention in the entire document around the explosion in out-of-wedlock birth rates to young men and women. Or the new norm or new acceptance that, you know, single mothers or single parents can be the norm within a given community and not acknowledging either the impact of this phenomena Mm -hmm. or the role that education reform should play in teaching the next generation. And so I think... What's beginning to happen is that we just don't talk about it at all. And that's why I've made the decision that these are issues that we must Mm -hmm. first acknowledge and then figure out what is the right role for education reform. And again, some people, you know, like I would say on the Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. thing, hey, I work in education reform. I don't know how to fix the criminal justice system. You know, of course, I think it's horrible what happened, uh, you know, to, to many uh, communities in recent years about these terrible shootings and they, you know, but, but well, how, I don't know what to do about it. Right. I got to stay focused on ed reform. People have the same attitude. Well, we don't yeah. know. You know, of course we would wish that we didn't have teenage pregnancy or we didn't have uh, family breakdown, but we run charter schools. We do education policy. What can we do about it? You are actually going to try to do something about it. So tell, tell us, what are you going to do in your charter schools to try to address Yeah, so th- again, a very difficult question in terms of how do you actually uh, talk about these things without being accused of moralizing or telling people what to do, yep. um, especially if for many of our kids, they are actually in families in which the parents 
did not follow the success sequence, mm-hmm. right? But what we're learning is that the vast majority of our families, the reason they've even entered the lottery for our schools is because they want us not only to teach you know, math and literacy and science, they actually want us to teach their kids about what are the right series of life choices mm-hmm. that give them the best chance at the American dream. So we're looking at things of incorporating into our curriculum actual uh, lesson plans, which talk about the data associated with certain life choices that might mean the success sequence because it's just pure information. It's it's almost like a probability and statistics class that if you make these series of life choices, this is the likelihood that you would result, your life will result in the middle class and beyond. These life choices will result in these outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so now you as a young person, you're building the armor to help you make informed decisions. At the end of the day, we want to produce empathetic, strong, informed young people who have the information to make the best decisions that are aligned with the vision that they have for their life, that they can lead the life of their choosing. And for us not to give this information, I think is actually um, irresponsible. And what's even more interesting in my view is that the vast number of, of people, you know, many of us leaders in the education reform community we follow the success sequence in our own lives. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, what is holding us back from preaching what we practice in our own lives? Mm-hmm. Unless you've been uncharacteristically uh, <laughs> quiet uh, today. I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. But yeah, I mean, I think this is a really... Uh, I'm glad that we're having this discussion. I think it's something that needs to be named and discussed. But I think to me, the question perpetually comes back to, so how do we address this via policy? And then we do get to these questions that you raised, Mike, about like, if we just focus on our locus of control, a favorite ed reform-like phrase, Mm -hmm. we can agree that, sure, this is important, but the details of how far we go with students, Mm -hmm. with families, what families are comfortable with, how these conversations might be different in the Bronx, Mm -hmm. where Ian's schools are, versus in rural Iowa, where I grew up, where social policy and things kind of intersect with these conversations as well. Like those are really tricky things to address on a broad policy stage. So I I think that's actually a really good point. And, and ironically, it might actually give us an entry point for a Mm -hmm. way to talk about these things because in my, in I've written my last two pieces, you know, white kids can't read Mm -hmm. either and other unacknowledged truths. Um, And the coming of the white underclass as an opportunity to improve education for all Mm -hmm. just one quick piece of data in the, I think the 2013 NAEP uh, report in West Virginia, Mm -hmm. rural um, state, the proficiency rate for black eighth graders, only 18.7% of black eighth grade boys are reading at proficiency. Mm -hmm. The proficiency rate for white eighth grade boys in West Virginia was Mm 19.7%. So there's a racial achievement gap. It's 1%. If we close it, hooray. (laughs) But that means that more than one in five black and white boys, eighth graders in West Virginia, aren't reading at proficiency. And I think if you look more broadly, there are larger numbers of white kids around the country Mm -hmm. now that are suffering from many of the same issues that we've seen emerge in black and brown communities. And in 
ironically, it might actually create an opportunity for us to make progress on this issue. Right, that if you take the, the race uh, issue away, that it's easier to talk about some of these things. I mean, look, I, I certainly think there's an opportunity for practitioners like yourselves, you know, other mm-hmm. leaders of charter networks, just to ask this question, what, you know, how, how do you teach your young people about these things? Now, it's going to get you into these tricky questions. I mean, it gets into the sex ed thing. It gets you into the school health clinic questions. Do you offer birth control? Do you offer long-acting reversible contraceptives? Mm -hmm. All of that. And there are policy issues, obviously. As you were implying, some states have said, hell no, are you going to teach sex ed? Or it's Mm got to be abstinence only. Or hell no, are you going to have school health clinics uh, handing out IUDs Mm -hmm. or the like? Uh, So, you know, but maybe the point is, hey, education reformers, we haven't really wanted to wade into those waters, but guess Mm -hmm. what? Maybe we need to. I mean, so a question that I would put actually back then to both of you is when, you know, we have a lot of great charter networks and a lot of great districts that have put a huge focus on college readiness and not just going to college, but to and through college. Mm -hmm. And if we're maybe not having the conversation about like, this is the success sequence, here are the steps that you follow from a personal life trajectory, but we're having it from a, this is the expectation of you the way that an upper middle class kid has the expectation that they go to college. Inevitably, if you're following that trajectory and you're going to college, you're waiting until you're 22 to kind of begin the rest of your life. If we talk about it that way, does that satisfy your emphasis on the success sequence as well? Well, I think if we were to arrive at the same level of comfort that Mm -hmm. we have in talking about college completion, which we seem to universally have, and extend that further, then I think think we would actually have a huge victory here. Mm -hmm. Because the data doesn't just say high school or college only. It does have these four steps. It, It talks about education, work, marriage, and children in a certain order. So again, it's just data. It's actually not a moral component exclusively, although obviously there is a moral component of this. It's saying that the best chances for a seven-year-old to learn over time, regardless of the family structure in which they're Mm -hmm. in, is to learn from those that have passed before him or her about what are the series of life choices over time Mm -hmm. that give you the best chance of living the American dream. Yeah. All right. Well, Ian, very well said. We'll finish on that that beautiful point. Thank you for joining us. Again, Ian Rowe, the CEO of Public Prep in New York City. Also, we're so proud to have you as our senior visiting fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Please come back again the next time you're in D.C. Thank you. All right. And now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show, Amber. Thanks, Mike. I want to ask you something about what we were just discussing. Okay. You're a big... <laughs> always, I'm always nervous when I'm not in the room. And you're and like, I, what were they talking about? And I come in later, yeah. right? Like, it could yeah, be anything. It's just teasing. No, we were talking about the unicorn cappuccino earlier. <laughs> uh, yeah. Expo, what is it? Frappuccino. Frappuccino. I know. You're a big Starbucks person. It is all person. the rage, right? Have you tried it? I've heard it looks that it disgusting. tastes like a just, sweet tart in water, is what it just, somebody said. It looks disgusting. I have not tried it. Is it a unicorn? I don't get it. It's there... like bright purple, purple and blue, and, and it has some okay. dust on top. Yes, that's Unicorn right. no, food I is a thing. Mean, and, if it's not my venti, no water, no foam, soy chai, I don't want it. Wow. That, <laughs> is, uh, that is quite the Starbucks yeah, and, and, and extra order. hot, by the way, when it gets really cold, and light ice when it's summertime. <laughs> <laughs> All right, baristas. It's extra hot. Is... Oh, oh, oh they, they you turn can up do the, that. The temperature on that baby. On the milk, oh, yeah. yeah. 
That sounds like a lawsuit. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I know. All right. It's <laughs> all good. What you got for us? We got a new report that examines where the effects of a teacher's value added, we're going to get wonky today, persist over one to two years and across subject areas. In particular, does the impact of an ELA teacher also impact a student's math achievement? Mm. We've seen similar studies like this, right? Okay. So prior research has provided some evidence that ELA instructional effects may be generalizable across subjects, given the applicability of reading and language skills. Makes sense? Yes. Uh, Using data from New York City and Miami-Dade, Susanna Loeb and colleagues, does this woman do an incredible Mm. number of studies or what? Mm -hmm. Uh, She's with Jim Wyckoff on this one. Uh, Use student records in grades four through eight where they have current and prior year achievement data available for students. They investigate the persistence of teacher's value-added effects on student achievement in the first and second year after they teach that student, distinguishing between short-term test-specific knowledge and longer-term generic knowledge that accumulates. Okay? Okay. Suffice it to say, the methods are complex, whereby they attempt to isolate teacher-specific value-added that persists both in the same subject and to and into the other subject, either, you know, math or ELA. They attempt to isolate this from the spillover effects that stem from the same year instructional collaboration with peers. Mm. They attempt to also estimate how much typical decay we can already expect from students' prior long-term knowledge. And then they've got a control for students' school and classroom effects. So Yeah, easy peasy. Yeah, yeah wow. this is just like E equals MC squared, right? Yeah, sure. Okay. okay. Let's just go to the final. This was like the other day when I made that Excel file uh, chart thing that I did in that blog post. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to the findings first. Most of the previously assessed long-term knowledge within the same subject area that was learned in the prior two years persisted into the third year. Like, isn't that great news? Because normally you think kids like, mm-hmm. boom, they forget it. It's done. It's gone. Okay. Most of it actually sticks around. All right. Number two, 26 to 29% of a teacher's within subject value added on student learning persist into the subsequent school year. Hmm. A little more than a quarter. Okay. Okay. Number three, however, ELA teacher effects persist at a much higher rate for students across both subjects both one and two years later. For example, in New York, the two-year, this gets a little wonky, the two-year cross-subject ELA persistence rate is approximately 42% of the within-subject two-year persistent rate. So you can basically say that approximately 42% of what you're seeing in ELA transfers into math in terms of how they've isolated this teacher value added, whereas we don't see anywhere near that for math. So in other words, it's not surprising, right? Because when you think about it, like, do we really expect math learning to contribute to ELA learning, right? No. No. But we do kind of reasonably yeah. would expect yeah. that it would happen in ELA. So summing up, quote, learning due to ELA instruction appears to impart long-term knowledge and skills that are, are reflected not only in short-term ELA scores, but also future test scores in both subject areas. Okay. So now, what does all it mean? Thank well, you. <laughs> They caution. You see where this is going, Mike? I do. You I do. see exactly where this is going. All right. And I'm very glad I'm already on record as being opposed to teacher evaluations based on value added. <laughs> That's where it's going. Um, ELA teacher contributions are diffuse, and a large portion of their instructional impact in current value added models may be going undetected mm-hmm. or ascribed to other mm-hmm. teachers in other mm-hmm. subject areas. Or years, so what do they end up recommending, do you think? Don't put too much stress on teacher evals. Well, that. And, wow, talk about getting complicated. Developing team-level measures 
or models that simultaneously account for multiple teachers' contributions in multiple subjects. Oh my, try to explain that one. Wait, please explain that to me. Well, yeah, I mean, so look, it basically means that if I'm a great teacher okay. and you get my kids the next year, part of your high value added is because of me. Okay, right. you're benefiting from me. Right. Okay. And so, uh, and even if you're a math teacher, you're benefiting yeah. from him. And, and so, ELA. if there's a bonus based on your value added, let's say you should be sharing some of that bonus. <laughs> <with me. laughs> right. Okay. It is messy. Wow. wow. Now, it, uh, another reason. Look, I, you know, look, I'm a big fan of value added for mm-hmm. schools. I mean, when you have yeah. a big enough group of kids and you can mm-hmm. average over all these things, I mean, I'm sure there's nuances. Right. Like, uh, you know, middle school value added mm-hmm. maybe is partly based on elementary school value. Right. So that would be interesting as well mm-hmm. but i you know so there's pieces there but when you get it down to the teacher it really it's gets so complicated. complicated i mean what it does and kind of going a little bit astray from the value add discussion um but i remember a few years ago and this is what this brings to mind is when states switched from kind of abcde tests to more richer and more rigorous tests like mm-hmm. the ela scores took the biggest hit mm-hmm. because it's so much harder to teach so if we're seeing effects from ELA persisting across subject matters. To me, this says, like, let's invest in getting really great ELA teachers. Yeah. Hello, I was a former ELA teacher, so this made me feel really <laughs> good. Watch this. Like, you think, oh, I'm just not making a difference, but hey, and, and Robert would love this, right? Because he's like, all oh, these yeah. tests never Core pick knowledge. up what we want them to be picking up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here is kind of an interesting um, mm-hmm. finding. Yeah. And this is even before, I, I, I suspect, even before there was all this focus in math on writing out you know, explain your answer. That's right. So this could be probably yeah. even. I don't even. even I don't think I wrote down the year, but yeah, probably. Although that writing across the curriculum has been twenty-five years, they've been talking about that. Now, whether they're doing <sighs> so it and whether they're talking the about it, do they have them do it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and Common Core Math that talks a lot about you know understanding math, being able to uh, articulate it verbally, multiple problem solving, yada yada. So mm-hmm. there is some some nod to that in, in mm-hmm. Common Core. So. All right. So, like, can we all agree we should not be making high stakes decisions based on teachers' uh, value? I add? think we're there. No high stakes decisions. No unicorn frappuccinos. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh, yes. Put a bow on yes. it. But yes, to the success secret. Start. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm Alyssa Schwenk, and I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.